Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are a guest here today, we just open up to a book and start preaching and we get through when we get through. So, you've caught us in the middle of a study of this wonderful book, Paul's second canonical letter to the church at Corinth. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We'll stop there for this morning. The Ides of March. Most of you have probably heard that catch word. It's a a word, a phrase that usually reminds us of perhaps the most well-known coup d'etat in the history of mankind. A coup d'etat is defined, I probably should should explain, some of you probably read those words and you being from Alabama pronounced them coup d'etat, but that's not it. It's coup d'etat. It's defined as, as a legal and overt attempt by the military or other government elites to unseat an incumbent leader. By force. And that's precisely what happened on the Ides of March. Many of you probably remember this, I'm sure, but a man by the name of Gaius Julius Caesar was a highly successful Roman general who led the armies of Rome in the Gallic Wars and ultimately defeated a man by the name of Pompey in a civil war. His military victories spread the Roman territory immensely. However, because Pompey, the man that he defeated, because Pompey had aligned himself with the Roman Senate, Julius Caesar was ordered to step down by the Senate following his victories against the Gaul. But he wouldn't have it. He did not step down. He defied the Senate. He marched into Rome at the head of the army and he took control of the government. And by 45 B.C., about... 40 years or so before Jesus was born, about 45 B.C., Julius Caesar was essentially unchallenged in Rome in power and influence, or at least it seemed that way. 
The political elites hated him. They hated the reforms that he brought to Rome. And so on March 15th, B.C. 44, the Ides of March, March 15th, they conspired together and they murdered Julius Caesar. One of Caesar's closest friends, Brutus, took part in the rebellion. Perhaps you've heard the words A2, Brute, from Shakespeare's play. I don't know that he actually said it, but that's what Shakespeare had him say. One author writes this of Brutus, quote, His name has been condemned for betrayal of his friend and benefactor Caesar and is perhaps only rivaled in this regard by the name Judas Iscariot, end quote. That's not very high marks. For Caesar, his fall did not come on a battlefield against the Gallic tribes, though you would have thought so. It wasn't the many foreign enemies that he led his army against that ended up being the real danger. No, Julius Caesar's real danger ultimately came from inside from his closest friends, those he thought were his allies. Well, much like the Ides of March, the biggest threat to Christianity in America today and to local churches is a spiritual coup d'etat being destroyed from the inside, not from the outside. Shouldn't come... Any surprise, since the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders this in Acts 20, quote, Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Listen to what Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, end quote. That's Paul's warning to a group of church leaders. Of course, Paul's warning to those Ephesian elders was rooted in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But many believers today in America have not been cautious. And even once Orthodox churches have now fallen prey to unorthodox, heretical teaching. Understand, this this book, 2 Corinthians, thus far has been Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. And in doing so, he has outlined the gospel in very specific terms. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Paul has plumbed the depths of the new covenant and the ministry that accompanies it. But in the text before us this morning... Paul makes his appeal to the saints of Corinth to return to him and thus the true gospel of Jesus Christ and to reject working with false teachers. The name of my sermon this morning is Threats from Inside. Threats from Inside. In this text, Paul stresses that the true gospel of justification by faith alone is incompatible with any other teaching of salvation. And therefore, we must not lock arms with false teachers in any capacity. 
So Paul begins, verse 11. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. You're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul says he didn't mince words with them. He, he spoke freely to them. Paul spoke the truth that they needed to hear whether they wanted to hear it or not. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. And Paul is loving. Look, if you truly love someone, you see that they are in spiritual danger, you warn them. Sadly, in our generation, we seem to have this idea that loving someone means affirming anything and everything that they desire, including sinful lifestyles. Many professing Christians have accepted that notion. That's not true love. True love is being willing to tell someone that their actions are sinful, that they are rebelling against God. Now that, that doesn't mean hitting somebody up at the back of the church and telling them you don't like their haircut. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. That's hateful. But I, I'm talking about warning people about actual sin in their lives. Something that the Bible condemns as sin. And that's precisely what Paul has done for these saints in Corinth. He had spoken freely to them because he saw them in spiritual danger. False teachers had followed Paul almost everywhere that he went. Paul went into a town, he left town, false teachers seemed to come in right on his heels. And those men had undermined the simplicity of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. Paul told the saints in Galatia where that had happened. Listen to this. Here's what he wrote to them. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then in case you didn't get it, he says it again. As we've said before, so say I now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. End quote. Look, embracing a false gospel is serious business. And it carries eternal consequences. And Paul told them that. He told them what they needed to hear because he loved them. Paul had opened his heart to them, but they had closed their heart to Paul. You're restricted by your own affections, he writes. You're not restricted by anything we've done. Paul desires for them to receive his love and then to return it in kind. He's writing to them as their spiritual father. That's brought out here in the text. I speak as to children. He's the one through whom God saved these people. And Paul says, I've opened my heart widely to you. In return, widen your hearts also. Paul is reaching out to these people in love that they hear what he's saying. And right on the heels of that, he really moves into the real crux of the matter. This is the height of this epistle so far right here. Verse 14, first line. Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. What is this idea of being yoked? And I thought, there's some young folks that have no idea what that's talking about. (laughs) It's not about eggs, in case you're thinking that. That's why, okay. Anyway, this, this is farming language here. The Old Covenant law actually gives us a perfect picture. Deuteronomy 22.10 says, You shall not plow an ox and a donkey together. That's what unequally yoked is. That doesn't work. They have a different gait, not G-A-T-E. G-A-I-T. They can't keep in step together. There's no possible way you can keep a, a plow straight. The best illustration I could come up with is, think of hooking a dog and a cat to the same plow. That's not going to work. The dog is going to do his best to do everything that the owner wants him to do, probably a little bit overzealously at times. The cat is going to sit there until he's ready to move. (laughs) And then he still may not move just because he knows you want him to. You'd never yoke a dog and a cat together. It, It doesn't work. That's the idea behind Paul's instruction here. Work. But he's not talking about secular work. He's talking about spiritual work, working in the gospel. The saints of Corinth needed to unhook themselves from false teachers, who, by the way, Paul clearly labels here as unbelievers. You cannot pull the gospel plow alongside those promoting heretical, unorthodox teaching. One of the popular notions today among some in Christianity is ecumenicalism. That is, setting aside doctrinal differences in order to cooperate together. We often think of this on a grand scale, but it can occur in little pockets of church fellowships over here and over here and over here where we're not willing to overlook maybe this group, but we're willing to overlook the ones in our own fellowship. Nevertheless, here, Paul is saying You cannot work alongside people with a spurious view of the gospel. And he's clear. Look, that ought to be enough for us to reject ecumenicalism outright. Now listen, I'm not saying we need to split, split every fine theological hair. I'm not saying that. If we do that... We will never have any cooperation with anybody. We will become this elitist cult that looks down our nose at every other blood-bought believer. We will view ourselves as the elect of the elect, a superior group above all others. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that major orthodox Christian doctrine must not, cannot ever be set aside for the sake of cooperation. We're not going to rub shoulders We're not going to support verbally, monetarily, anyone we know to be a heretic. Period. That's what's going on here in Corinth. They have allowed false teachers into the church and Paul is calling them on it. 
He says, you're trying to do what you know can't be done. You wouldn't hook two different animals to a plow and think they're going to pull straight. And yet spiritually, that's precisely what you're trying to do. And it goes on all the time in churches a whole lot closer to our belief system than we would really like to think. That we must be diligent when we consider partnering with anybody in missionary work. Now before we move on from this first sentence, let me offer a bit of a disclaimer relative to this verse. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers has, has been an off-quoted proof text against a believer marrying an unbeliever. Now let me be clear. The Bible does draw a line there, very clearly. Believers should marry believers. The Bible is... Very plain about that. First Corinthians, the Bible is very clear about that. But that's not what this text is aimed at. That may be an application from this text, but that is not the meaning of this text. And we need, we need to separate those things. Paul here is talking about plowing together, working together. There's actually not a word about marriage in the whole passage. You've got to stick it in there. So we just won't. Verse 14 again. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul offers five rhetorical questions here. I'm sure you know this. A rhetorical question is, is employed just to make an effect. Paul's not looking for an answer. The answer to these questions are obvious. Paul doesn't have to answer them. You know the answer to these things. Righteousness cannot parture with lawlessness. Neither one will accomplish their goal. Light cannot coexist with darkness. If you walk into a room, you turn on the light, the darkness flees. That's why I say light and darkness cannot coexist. I use the term coexist on purpose because there is a movement today. The coexist movement. You've probably seen it on bumper stickers. Essentially, this group seeks to knock down any and every wall between religions. I don't mean ecumenicalism, denominations. I mean religions, Buddhism. Islam, Christianity, Judaism, whatever. And they want us to just all work together for a better planet. But look, that's not possible. Christianity is light. And every other religion is darkness. Christianity is the only true religion. All others are the wide way that leads to destruction. Those promoting the true gospel of Jesus Christ then, justification by faith alone, cannot work alongside those promoting some other way to God. Paul is clear. They cannot coexist. Christ and Belial here, he mentions. This is a, this is a pet name for the devil, Belial. I could give you the history behind that, but there's no need to. It's clear. They're fighting for opposite eschatologies, Right? God is going to win in the end. And if we are on His side, we win too. The devil is going to lose, but he's fighting for a different end. There's no way we could work together. 
A believer and an unbeliever share no portion. We have completely different masters. Our worldviews are completely and diametrically opposed to one another. The temple of God and the temple of idols obviously serve different purposes. One exists to worship Yahweh, the only true and living God. The other exists to worship a false deity. These questions aren't rocket science. These are simple Paul's saying they should have known better. This should be Christian common sense. He goes on, verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from among their midst, or go out, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God has not promised to be with false teachers. History has proven that. Biblical history has proven that. God is always opposed false teachers. And He always will. But God has promised to dwell among His people. Now, this temple of the living God that is mentioned here, it was actually mentioned in the previous verse, needs to be explained. Under the old covenant economy, God dwelled between the cherubim in the Jewish temple, in the, in the Holy of Holies, the one that God Himself designed and gave the plans to Moses to build. Well, actually, Moses actually built the tabernacle originally, and ultimately the permanent structure was the temple. Anyway, today under the new covenant, not the old covenant law, but under the new covenant, this side of the death, burial, and resurre- resurrection of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit dwells within His people. Inside His people, both individually and corporately. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul told this same church, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So individually, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. But the gathered church, the local assembly, is also referred to in this same language. In other words, when believers gather, spirit-indwelled individuals gather together, the Lord has promised to be with us corporately. By the way, Paul using the term, the living God. That contrasts God with all of the idols of the world. Gods who are no gods at all. God is the only true and living God. Well, based on that truth, Paul argues further that those with the true gospel have no business locking arms with those promoting a false gospel. I'm sure you can see that the rest of this chapter, at least if you're using a modern translation, you can see that the rest of this chapter is set apart as an Old Testament quote. But what we actually have here is a series of Old Testament quotes, not just one. It's several strung together to make a point. We'll, we'll, just, 
We'll go through them rather quickly. It's not difficult. All of these quotations have to do with God's promised, intimate relationship with Israel if they remain separate from the pagan nations around them. And then Paul uses all of these references as examples for the Corinthian saints to separate from the false teachers. What was written beforehand was written for our example. And so that's how Paul uses it. First, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a quote from Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12. There, God promises this blessing to Israel that He would walk among them, dwell among them, He would be their God, they would be His people if they were obedient to Him in worshiping Him and Him only, not the pagan gods of the nations that surrounded them. Then in verse 17, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Here Paul actually combines two scriptures to make one quote, Isaiah 52.11 and Ezekiel 20.34. The context refers to the carrying of the Lord's vessels out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had carried the vessels from Jerusalem to Babylon. Belshazzar ended up worshiping in them and the handwriting on the wall came and condemned him, you may recall. Anyway, here the context is for them to return to the land of Israel. Both of these, by the way, have these kingdom promises, assurances that Messiah will reign from David's throne over the world. Of course, Isaiah 52, 11 is followed by that beautiful passage that we all know in Isaiah 53, the gospel in the Old Testament. Jesus will reign, but not apart from Calvary. We see that in Isaiah 53, right? Anyway, the people of Israel were to separate from their pagan captors. The captors were worshiping the false gods of Babylon. And God says, come out from among them, go back to the land and worship me in truth. Of course, when they got there, they weren't very faithful and God had to send them more prophets. But that's still what He commanded them to do. Lastly, in verse 18 here, Paul joins 2 Samuel 7.14 and Deuteronomy 32, 18 and 19 together. I I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. By the way, it's the only time Paul uses that name of God, Lord Almighty, in all of his letters. That, by the way, refers to God as the omnipotent ruler of all creation, heaven and earth. What's interesting about this particular quote is that Paul borrows from 2 Samuel 7.14. 2 Samuel 7.14 is contained within the Davidic covenant promise. In other words, that's, that's a passage where God promises David that one of his descendants, the Messiah, Jesus, would sit on His throne, reign over a worldly kingdom that no human would ever conquer. That's the context of 2 Samuel 7.14. Why in the world would Paul use that passage, a passage clearly pointing to Jesus, to show God's fatherly relationship to all believers? That's a good question. Here's why. Because we've been united to Jesus. 
Jesus is the only unique Son of God. Yes, we are Him. We are not the second person in the Trinity. We are not God, nor will we ever be. We do not have creative power, no matter what miracle someone tells you they have on their tongue. That's a lie. We're not God. Jesus is the only unique Son of God. But we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 17. So that's why Paul can take 2 Samuel 7, 14 and he can apply it to us because we have been unionized with Christ. We've been united to Him. Well, without plumbing the depths of all those passages, we we don't have time for that, but Paul's point is clear. You, You don't have to wonder what he's saying. God's people are to be holy. You say, well, I can't be holy. Yes, you can. Not in the sense that God is holy. But holy just means to be separate from the world. God has made you that. You are separate from the world. And as holy people, we cannot lock arms with unbelievers to promote some type of religion. That's what was going on here. You see Paul's point. Look, when truth is, re- is united with error, only the truth is hurt. A straight shooting child of God cannot plow alongside a crooked child of the devil. It won't work. It can't work. And this church, the church at Corinth, could not partner with false teachers and expect that they were doing God's work at the same time. This is strong language. Well, Paul finishes this passage off actually in verse 1 of chapter 7. Why in the world somebody chose to put the conclusion of this entire argument in the first verse of the seventh chapter, I will never know. Well, it's like they flipped a coin or something. It obviously sums up what Paul's been saying. Since we have these promises, I mean, obviously starting with chapter 7 is not going to help you with the promises, right? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, the promises that we are the temple of the living God, individually and corporately, that's the promise he's, he's talking about here. Since God has promised to be with us, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Listen, false religion allows for and often promotes a sinful lifestyle. Jude warns of those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Obviously, from what we've studied in 1 Corinthians and what we have and will study here in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian saints were far from holy in their daily living. I have no question that false teachers played a big role in that. By the way, the Greek word uh, molismos here translated defilement is only used here. We don't have anywhere to turn and look anywhere else in the Bible to compare it to, at least not in the New Testament. But it is used in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Here's what John MacArthur writes 
of that word in the Old Testament usage. Quote, in all three of its uses in the Septuagint, it refers to religious defilement. Paul calls believers not only to cleanse themselves from sin and immorality, but especially in this context, from all associations with false religion. End quote. He's not the only commentator to bring that out. Colin Cruz says the exact same thing in his wonderful commentary on 2 Corinthians. So listen, compromise with false teachers in Corinth was actually confusing the gospel by contradicting orthodox biblical truth and ultimately crippling their walk with God and actually encouraging sinful lifestyles among the congregants. We don't have to wonder about that. That's on the pages of Scripture. When you think of Corinth, you think lawlessness, sinfulness, wretchedness. These people were constantly having to be corrected by the Apostle Paul. What they needed to do was reject the false teachers and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's what Paul says. In other words, they needed to live separately from the world. In other words, not chasing the same dreams. It doesn't mean you can't shop at Walmart or go to the game or or whatever. It's It's not saying any of that. But we're not chasing the same dreams because we have a completely different worldview. We are serving God. Christians know that God is God. And we understand that we are His slaves and He is the Master. At least we should know that. Believers know we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul said that back in chapter 5, verse 10, right? And then he goes right on along and says that it was the fear of the Lord that drove him to share the gospel. And here... He tells them that that same fear of the Lord should drive them to live holy lives in this age. Listen, in this passage, Paul calls on the Corinthian saints to stick with him. Because he, in contrast with the false teachers, he has the true gospel. But Paul has given us a clear sketch, if you want to call it that, of of both the New Covenant and New Covenant ministry in this letter so far. I mean, it's, it's been so awesome to plumb the depths of the New Covenant. And in doing so, Paul has described what he preached and that flatly contradicted what the false teachers were preaching. These false teachers in Corinth were not pagan priestesses from the temple of Aphrodite. Those were easy to spot. No, they were professing Christians, claiming to be followers of Jesus, but preaching a false gospel. That was the danger in Corinth, and it is the biggest danger to professing Christendom today. Christians today are far more likely to pick up a religious book in a Christian bookstore that was written by a heretic than they are to listen to a Muslim imam or a Buddhist priest. That's the danger. Remember, Paul has said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. True believers no longer judge things by the old worldview. We don't do what is pragmatic. And yet here in Corinth, some of these believers 
We're being pulled away from the Apostle Paul, away from the true gospel by false teachers with whom they were locking arms, partnering with, and Paul says that can't work. It can't work. One thing that has been shocking in my 25 years of pastoring is the utter lack of biblical discernment amongst church-going people. When I've watched the same narrative play over and over and over and over, folks are brought up in an Orthodox church, raised in a conservative corner of Christianity, only to move to a church where things are more exciting. The problem is where things get more exciting, the doctrine goes away. I've watched churches which historically had sound biblical teaching, overlook, support, and at times even embrace fundamentally flawed, unorthodox teaching, even spurious views of the Trinity. False teaching abounds under the umbrella of Christendom today, under the guise of biblical Christianity. Much of it is just bizarre. It's crazy. I don't know if you saw the video that I posted this week on Facebook. It's just that stuff's so easy to, to see the problem. It's just, it's just bizarre. It's crazy. There's nothing like it in Scripture. It's the kind of stuff you might find on a religious television station like TBN. That's probably not the biggest threat. False teachers are found in church environments that are far more toned down and, and appear at least to be sane at first glance. Churches, using that term loosely, churches are morally lax, to put it mildly, gay-affirming to be more precise. Major denominations have embraced the LGBTQ plus agenda, actually allowing sexually deviant, unregenerate, according to Scripture, people into church leadership when they really shouldn't even be members. Intoxicating recreational drug use has found its stamp of approval in religious societies that we call churches. The prosperity gospel and churches promoting it are growing by leaps and bounds today. In such societies, Jesus is little more than a genie in a bottle and He exists for no other reason than to satisfy your fleshly desires. Antinomianism. That's Christianity without any moral restraint. Has people repeating a prayer for salvation, then going on to live a life ever how you want without any real commitment to Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum, legalists have narrowed down sanctification to just a list of a few rules that someone has to keep in order to please God. And usually they're just extra biblical rules. They vary from group to group to group. In such places, pleasing the Lord just means coming to church, dropping your tithe in the box, and going on to live your life ever how you want to after that. That's just ceremonialism. And it undermines the gospel of justification by faith alone, a commitment to Jesus as Lord. In more conservative churches, though, from what I've personally witnessed among Baptist churches in my life, the biggest danger is for the preacher to cherry-pick a few doctrines that he knows people want to hear and preach those six doctrines over and over and over, month after month after year after year after decade after decade. And as long as those six doctrines are affirmed, everything's okay. That sounds a lot like Paul's warning to Timothy. 
2 Timothy 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the midst. End quote. I've watched that very thing happen with my own eyes. In churches that once had sound biblical teaching and today still have an orthodox confession, but it's, it's not being taught from the pulpit. It's not being practiced by the members out in society. Affirm six cardinal truths and you can say Jesus died spiritually. He was separated from the Trinity at Calvary. It don't matter. Whatever. Listen, that's just heresy in the worst way. Now the danger in conservative religious societies is not Joel Osteen or Sarah Young's Jesus Calling. Those are terrible. The danger in a church where the same six doctrines are repackaged and repreached week after week just to tickle the ears of the people, the danger there is that people are lulled to sleep. They become ignorant of their Bible and they don't even realize it when false doctrine rears its ugly head. You think that's possible here at this church? I assure you it is. Because there are certain subjects that I can preach and I always get a man great sermon and then we preach a rich section on the gospel and it's not quite the same. We all have our own individual hobby horses that we like. I do too. I'm not suggesting I'm any different. But guys, listen, we need everything in this book. Everything. Even the passages that you feel are monotonous and mundane, texts you initially get nothing from at first glance, we need them. God has designed the Bible in such a perfect fashion that if we preach it all, we get the perfect diet. From theology to practicality, from Genesis to Revelation. So when it comes to to preaching or even personal Bible study, don't be a picky eater. Eat your veggies. Eat your meats, not just dessert. Look, we need a working knowledge of the entire book if we're going to be a healthy church full of healthy individuals. Now, later in this letter, Paul describes the false teachers in Corinth like this. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. I don't know if you caught it, but that's not glamorous. There were these men that had crept in into a church the Apostle Paul founded. We're not that, if you didn't know. Into a church Paul himself founded, and they were disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, servants of righteousness, Again, listen, I don't think the danger in conservative churches today is primarily the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens of the world turning those churches into flaming Pentecostals. I don't think that's the, the danger. The danger is for men on the inside who embrace all of that charismatic theology and then they slowly lull the church to sleep and then push it into their minds. That's the danger. We here must be alert, awake, never knowingly sending money to people that promote that type of heresy. Listen, today, 
God speaks through His Word as the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and minds. So we need to be rightly dividing it. Cutting it straight, Paul says. We need the gospel pounded into us over and over and over and over. It's all in this book. This is, if we forget the gospel, we forgot everything we need. There's a reason it's taught on almost every page. Because we need it. We tend to forget it if we don't get it taught to us. We need foundational Christian doctrines of the, of the faith taught so that we can spot a heretic from a mile away. Look, Jesus, when being tempted by the devil, said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God is right there. So we're going to do our best to preach it. All of it. One of these days, Brian is even going to talk me and Jacob into preaching through the Song of Solomon. I don't know when. It probably won't be advertised. It'll be on a Thursday morning about 10 o'clock. Guys, listen, I'll close with this. Just because something claims to be Christian doesn't mean it is. These false teachers in Corinth said they were believers in Jesus. And Paul calls them unbelievers in this text. Let us be like those saints in Berea who received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's what we need to be. That's what Paul is calling these saints in Corinth to do. And the instruction remains the same for us today at Sovereign Grace in Northport, Alabama.